York. This is Democracy Now! We also engaged our close allies and partners to inform them of the presence of the surveillance balloon in our airspace. We concluded that conditions were not conducive for a constructive visit at this time. U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken has canceled a planned trip to China after the discovery of a high-altitude Chinese balloon flying across the United States. On Saturday, a U.S. fighter jet shot it down off the coast of South Carolina. We'll look at what this all means for U.S.-China relations. Then the European Commission unveils a plan to set up a special center at The Hague to prosecute Russia for the crime of aggression for its invasion of Ukraine. We'll speak to longtime human rights attorney Reed Brody. Vladimir Putin should be prosecuted for war crimes and aggression. And even if he's not arrested today, these crimes will hang over his head forever. The question is whether the massive and welcome justice response around the horrors which Putin has visited on Ukraine will also be applied to crimes committed by powerful Western actors. Plus, we'll speak to the pioneering legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw about her work on intersectionality and critical race theory as the College Board removes her writings from the required curriculum for its AP African American Studies class. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A 7.8-magnitude earthquake struck early this morning in south-central Turkey, killing more than 1,700 people in Turkey and neighboring Syria, though the death toll is expected to keep rising. Dozens of powerful aftershocks followed, including a second 7.5-magnitude earthquake in southeastern Turkey. The epicenter of the initial quake is near the city of Gaziantep, which houses hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees and where the UNHCR runs one of its largest operations. Both the government and rebel-held areas of northwestern Syria reported heavy casualties. This is a survivor speaking from the Aleppo region. There are 12 families trapped here, and no one managed to get out. They are all inside here. So far, no one has come here to see where people are. There is no civil defense. We've been working with our hands since 3 a.m. The Pentagon shot down a Chinese balloon off the coast of South Carolina Saturday, several days after it was first spotted over Montana, a state that's home to a major military base and silos holding scores of intercontinental ballistic missiles. The high-altitude balloon's appearance over the United States prompted Secretary of State Antony Blinken to cancel a planned trip to Beijing, accusing China of unacceptable and irresponsible spying. China's defense minister claimed the balloon was a weather research station that had blown off course and accused the U.S. of an obvious overreaction. On Capitol Hill, Republican leaders were quick to accuse President Biden of weakness, saying he failed to shoot down the balloon quickly enough. A Pentagon official responded by telling reporters there were at least three similar incursions of Chinese surveillance balloons during the Trump administration. We'll have more on this story after headlines. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces shot and killed at least five Palestinian men earlier today during a raid on the city of Jericho. The killings came as Israeli troops raided the Akabat Jabar refugee camp, which has been under siege for more than a week. This is a camp resident who witnessed the violence. 
They went in and did not have a specific house in mind. They targeted the whole camp, and they started from the entrance of the camp onwards with their ill-doing, and then they left. And in this mess, houses on the sides of the camp were targeted as if they were criminals while they were asleep in their houses. This follows the killing of 26-year-old Palestinian Abdullah Sami Kalalwe, who was unarmed when Israeli soldiers at a military outpost south of Nabla shot him Friday. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of people held rallies in 20 cities across Israel Saturday to demand Israel's far-right government cancel plans to severely limit the power of the judiciary. It was the fifth straight week of protests. In Iran, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei has pardoned tens of thousands of prisoners, including people involved in recent anti-government protests, according to Iranian state news outlets. In related news, the award-winning filmmaker Jafar Panahi has been released from prison on bail after he went on hunger strike protesting his detention. The 62-year-old was arrested in July for speaking up about another director, Mohammad Rasulov, who'd been imprisoned a few days earlier for criticizing police. Violence. In Iraq, human rights groups are demanding justice for Tiba Alali, a 22 year old YouTube star who was killed by her father last week. The two were reportedly in a dispute involving Alali's decision to live alone in Turkey. She was visiting Iraq when her father strangled her to death. Rights advocates are calling on the Iraqi government to enact legislation against gender based violence, as no current laws criminalize domestic violence. This is activist Hafsa Amr speaking from a protest in Baghdad Sunday. Tiba is a famous person, well-known on social media. Just as there are many women who don't have a voice and who can't make their voices heard, we are here to represent the voices of oppressed women, the victims who don't have a voice. In other news from Iraq, loved ones of environmentalist and water protector Jassim al-Assadi are demanding his safe return after he was kidnapped by an unknown armed group near Baghdad last week. Al-Assadi is the head of the group Nature Iraq, which fights for the protection of the country's southern wetlands and a recipient of the Goldman Prize. Former president of Pakistan and military chief Pervez Musharraf died Sunday at the age of 79. He died from a rare medical condition in Dubai, where he'd been living in exile since 2016. Musharraf seized power in a 1999 coup and resigned in 2008. The end of his rule came following a tumultuous year in Pakistan, which saw the growth of militant groups and the assassination of prime minister and political foe Benazir Bhutto. Musharraf suspended the constitution, imposed emergency rule in 2007. He was a key ally to the U.S. and President George W. Bush in his so-called war on terror following the September 11th attacks. In 1999, Musharraf planned an attack in the Kargil region of Indian-controlled Kashmir. Over 500 Indian soldiers were killed, at least four hundred Pakistani soldiers, though some estimates place the numbers much higher. At least one woman and four children drowned Sunday after a boat carrying some 40 refugees from Turkey sank off the Greek island of Leros. This came just days after another eight refugees, including a pregnant woman and a four-month-old baby, died off the Italian island of Lampedusa. Survivors said they'd experienced extreme cold, dehydration, didn't have food after days at sea. Their boat had departed from Tunisia last week. In Britain, tens of thousands of nurses and EMTs launched a coordinated strike today, the largest labor action in the history of the government-run National Health Service. More strikes are planned during the week as health workers ramp up their demands for a living wage in the UK's worst inflation in four decades. This is a striking nurse. 
I think we're going to find it harder and harder to recruit, harder and harder to retain staff. A lot of people have left the profession already because they're so disillusioned. Um, I think we've got to look at the future, and that's what this is all about. The nurses' work stoppage comes amidst a wave of strikes across various sectors in the U.K. In Chile, wildfires have killed at least 24 people as some 260 blazes raged in the center and south of Chile over recent days, fanned by dry winds and temperatures reaching as high as 104 degrees. Officials said Sunday some 270,000 acres have been scorched. This is an evacuee in the region of La Araucanía. I left my house with only the clothes I was wearing. I put on a pair of slippers and some tights and left the house. There was no time to set up a fire break. Nothing. I think everyone here went through the same situation. The wind speed changed very fast and everything suddenly started to burn. It was all very fast. A record-breaking Arctic blast sent temperatures plummeting across much of the northeastern United States and parts of Canada Saturday. In New Hampshire, Mount Washington recorded the nation's coldest-ever wind chill at negative 108 degrees Fahrenheit. The death of an infant was reported in western Massachusetts from a falling tree. Meanwhile, in Texas, the Austin American statesman issued a rare front-page editorial condemning officials for their response to last week's ice storm, which left over 150,000 Austin residents without power. Ten people were killed across the southern U.S. by the storm, seven of them in Texas. Some 460,000 people lost power. The Democratic National Committee approved a radical overhaul of the primary calendar, making South Carolina the first primary contest of the 2024 presidential election, replacing the Iowa caucus. Primaries in Nevada, New Hampshire, Georgia and Michigan will then follow. The new voting schedules intended to give more weight to voters of color. But New Hampshire and Georgia continue to oppose the changes and have not yet moved their primary dates. They have until June to do so will face sanctions if they refuse to comply, including losing half their delegates. In Missouri, death penalty abolitionists are calling on Republican Governor Mike Parson to cancel Tuesday's planned execution of Leonard Raheem Taylor, a black man who's always maintained his innocence. Taylor was convicted on four counts of first-degree murder over the 2004 killing of his girlfriend and her three young children. Witnesses say Taylor was 2,000 miles away from the scene of the crime at the time of the murders. Taylor recently spoke from prison with Missourians for alternatives to the death penalty. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I, I, not only did I not commit the crime, but um, for one, like I said, there was no motive. You know, I had no reason to commit the crime. Um, I wasn't even in the state of Missouri when these murders took place. The Innocence Project say Taylor's lawyer effectively abandoned him, providing an incompetent defense at trial. They're asking Governor Parson to delay the execution until a thorough investigation can be completed. And the 65th Grammy Awards were held in Los Angeles Sunday night. Beyonce made history. She won her 32nd statue, making her the most awarded artist in the history of the Grammys. Viola Davis won for the audiobook of her memoir, Finding Me, and joins the exclusive EGOT Club, having won all four major entertainment awards, an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. Kim Petras and Sam Smith also made history, becoming the first openly trans and non-binary duo to win a Grammy, bringing home an award for their hit, Unholy. First Lady Jill Biden presented the Iranian singer, Sharveen Ajipur, with the new Song for Social Change Special Merit Award for Baroya. 
which has become an anthem for the Iranian uprising. The singer was arrested after the song went viral, is out on bail, awaiting trial. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at U.S.-China relations after President Biden ordered the Pentagon to shoot down a high-altitude Chinese surveillance balloon off the coast of South Carolina Saturday. The balloon is believed to have first entered the U.S. airspace in Alaska and was then spotted in Montana, which is the home of the Malmstrom Air Force Base, a major U.S. nuclear weapons site. On Friday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced he was postponing a trip this week to China, where he was scheduled to meet with China's foreign minister. Blinken spoke Friday. We're confident this is a Chinese surveillance balloon. Once we detected the balloon, the U.S. government acted immediately to protect against the collection of sensitive information. We communicated with the PRC government directly through multiple channels about this issue. Members of my team consulted with our partners in other agencies and in Congress. We also engaged our close allies and partners to inform them of the presence of the surveillance balloon in our airspace. We concluded that conditions were not conducive for a constructive visit at this time. China has criticized the U.S. for shooting down what Beijing has described as a civilian airship. On Friday, a spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry said, quote, the Chinese side regrets the unintended entry of the airship into U.S. airspace. It's a civilian airship used for research, mainly meteorological purposes. The airship deviated far from its planned course, he said. U.S. divers are now searching the waters off the coast of South Carolina for remnants of the down balloon to learn more about its mission. A second Chinese balloon has been spotted in Latin America. It's widely known that the U.S. and China have been conducting surveillance on each other for years using satellites, hacking, spies and other means. Over the weekend, Republican lawmakers blasted President Biden for allowing the balloon to fly across the United States. But the Pentagon has revealed Chinese balloons also entered the continental United States at least three times during the Trump administration, as well as once before under Biden. This all comes just days after the Philippines agreed to allow the U.S. military to expand its military footprint in the former U.S. colony as part of Washington's efforts to counter China. We're joined now by Nicholas Becklin. He is a visiting fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center, previously worked at Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. We welcome you to Democracy Now! Um, Nicholas Becklin, if you could start off by just going through what happened this weekend, both the downing of the surveillance satellite, which is, I think, believed to be about three buses long, and also uh, Blinken deciding to cancel his meeting uh, in Beijing with President Xi. That's right. So I think that the, uh, you know, the U.S.-China relation is really at the lowest point we've seen in decades. Uh, what started as an incident over a surveillance balloon um, really has turned into a, a much bigger issue on the, on the world's geopolitical stage. Uh, the balloon was uh, spotted uh, by the U.S. military, which is something that you expect. Uh, countries spy on each other. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, why did the U.S. decide to make it public? 
and in making it public, basically sealed the fate of that rekindling of the U.S.-China relationship with a visit by Secretary of State Blinken to China, where he would be meeting with President Xi Jinping ahead and preparing the ground for a meeting between President Biden and President Xi Jinping. So I think once the issue of the spy balloon was in the public eye, uh, it was uh, just a matter of time before, you know, the war of words uh, between the two countries escalated, that the polarization uh, in the U.S. discourse towards China was reignited, um, and that ultimately the the balloon was going to be uh, shot down. So the real question here is, why do we have this sort of public theater uh, over the uh, spying activities of China, which are, you know, very uh, long, uh, there's a very long history of it. And of course, uh, the U.S. also spies on China, although we have to admit one country is a democracy, the other is a one-party dictatorship. But nonetheless, on the international stage, you know, countries do spy on each other. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is gained from wrecking the rekindling of the U.S.-China relationship? Is it making Americans safer? Is it making the world safer? Uh, Is it going to help us tackle climate change uh, or technology or rekindle economic growth? Um, I don't think that there has been much thinking about this. And this inflection point is, I think, very worrying uh, for the future of the relationship and for the future of of global politics. I mean, it's clear what happened was, I mean, the the, uh, satellite balloon came in through the Aleutian Islands, Alaska, went down through Canada, uh, came through, what, Idaho, Idaho, Montana, uh, made its way across the country. Normally, as you said, this has happened before again and again and again, mainly under, you know, the Republican administration of Trump. But people didn't see it with their naked eye. Uh, Biden had to respond because in Montana, they, in Billings, they were taking pictures of it. Um, but the question is, why do you hold a summit like the one between Blinken and President Xi? Is it during just peaceful times or is it during times of great conflict where you want to resolve something? So what about Blinken? And of course, that would be at the behest of President Biden canceling a meeting at this critical juncture. Well, I think that the U.S. policy predating this incident has been to um, contain uh, China to um, uh, take all sorts of measures, diplomatic, uh, military, uh, intelligence, um, in order to uh, prevent the rise of what is seen as a peer competitor of the United States. Uh, China is an autocratic regime. It has military ambitions. It wants to reshape the uh, international order. Um, the U.S. thinks that it has to stop this. Uh, it has clearly uh, said that uh, its ambition is to remain the only superpower, the uh, remain number one. Um, and of course, this is viewed, you know, very dimly in Beijing. 
you have to put this incident back in the context uh, of the long uh, relationship between U.S. and China. From Beijing perspective, you have to go back to 1999 when the U.S. bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade during the Yugoslav war. You have to put it in context with looking back at 2001 when a, a U.S. spy EP-3 plane was uh, down after a collision with a Chinese jet. You have to put it back in context because the U.S. is conducting a lot of military maneuvers uh, near the Chinese coast uh, around Taiwan. So from Beijing perspective, you know, this is not an equal fight. This is not a peer-to-peer. China is the challenger. China is the one who feels surrounded and bullied by the U.S. Um, and they see this as sort of another step in, in that direction. And again, you know, the question is, all right, if the U.S. really asserts its primacy in this way, if it's committed to remaining the only superpower and the top superpower, will all the problems in the world disappear? Uh, and I think that's a really magical thinking to think that by refusing to engage with China, by refusing to talk uh, with China, by not making the conditions conducive to a meeting between Biden and Xi, um, that you somehow magically are going to solve all the problems uh, that are urgent and that needs to be addressing. The two countries need to speak to each other. And what we've seen with this balloon incident is a lot of theatrics that justify just the opposite. So let's talk about what's happening between the U.S. and China. You have China um, uh, having a relationship with Russia, and some are accusing it of uh, supporting Russia in some ways, though it has also held back from supporting the invasion, has um, actually criticized the invasion. And you have um, Secretary of Defense Austin in the Philippines announcing that U.S. military bases would be increasing there. Clearly, this has to do with China, the increased U.S. militarization um, from South China Sea to the Philippines. Can you talk about the significance of this? Oh, this is extremely significant. And the announcement by the Philippines that it would open up a number of naval bases to the U.S. is just the latest of some major tectonic shifts in, in geopolitical uh, relations in the region. You also have a new alliance between Japan, Australia, uh, the U.S. and India. Uh, you have uh, uh, new um, economic uh, trade deals. You have security arrangements between India and the U.S. India was for a very long time trying to remain neutral, but now is sort of uh, leaning towards the U.S. because of the perceived danger from China. So there, there is a very deliberate, concerted uh, attempt by the U.S., to um, encircle China and to prevent it, to dissuade it, that, that's the idea, of, of causing a conflict in the South China Sea by trying to militarily take over Taiwan uh, or, or just gaining influence in the Indo-Pacific, which the U.S. is at, it, at um, uh, its, its um, area of, of influence uh, and relevant to, to national security. Now, there is no denying that we have to be very wary of uh, a one-party state dictatorship ambitions. And under Xi Jinping, China has an 
absolutely horrific records on human rights uh, and on other matters. But, you know, look at the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, up to a million of people thrown into labor camp. Look at what happened in Hong Kong, which was decapitated with a national uh, security law that has led to the arrest of hundreds of peaceful protesters and, and opposition lawmakers. So there is no doubt that, you know, China wants to disrupt the world order, wants to make it more comfortable for a dictatorship and one-party system, and that this should be opposed. But the problem is, do you oppose it better by not talking at all with China? And that seems to be the Biden administration's strategy. And we have to be very careful because uh, seeding the, the, the seeds of humiliation and resentment is not a good policy. We've seen it with Russia. Russia is no peer competitor to the U.S., but it can create a huge amount of problem. We see it with Turkey, the same thing. So is that what we want from China? We want a, a weakened China that is, will remain always under the, the, the U.S. in terms of comparative power. That's pretty much a given, actually but that we want them to be resentful against the U.S. and against the West and, and seed, um, you know, the, the, the roots of possible conflicts in the future. And can you talk about both China's relationship with Russia? I mean, at the same time, it looks like President Xi in the last months has been uh, trying to smooth over um, waves with the United States. And then also talk about what you think will happen with Taiwan. So let's start with Russia. Um, I think that what we see with Russia is that you know, China feels very isolated on the international stage. Uh, and it sees a looming conflict. It's not military, at least, a, you know, very strong geopolitical conflict with the U.S. It cannot afford, in Beijing's eyes, to uh, uh, lose an ally like Russia. At the same time, its economy and its opening to globalization and to the world cannot afford to cut off relationship with uh, the West. We have to remember that China mostly trades with the U.S., trade with the U.S. is at its highest point historically, and with uh, uh, Europe. So they don't want to lose this. So they have this sort of fake neutrality where they don't engage in support uh, to Russia, but actually sort of continue to trade uh, uh, normally. So the, the, the fact that, you know, China aligns itself um, or, or sort of have this fake neutrality with Russia is a concern. But how do you address it? Do you address it by trying to convince China to peel off the support from uh, to Russia and to Putin? Or do you just declare them as enemies of the same ilk and refuse to uh, speak to them? I think that's one of the the question that has to be asked. And we, we haven't seen much from from this, from the from the U.S. administration um, at the moment. And Taiwan. So Taiwan is really uh, a, a huge issue. Uh, there is absolutely no doubt that China has the ambition to reclaim Taiwan as its own. Uh, and it has not put a military uh, a solution uh, off the table. That is extremely worrying. Now, what is equally worrying is the fact that the U.S. has basically abandoned the terms of the coexistence with China on this issue, which is, you know, we leave the status quo 
uh, and we will respect some red lines, um, and such as Taiwan declaring independence or stationing U.S. troops on Taiwan or Taiwan um, uh, uh, taking one of the two sides, either Taiwan or China, taking military uh, action. But the domestic politics in the U.S. at the moment, with the opposition to China being basically the only glue, the only common area between the Democrats and the Republicans, mean that there is a constant escalation. And the media, by the way. And the media. And the media. and the media. And there is a constant escalation of, you know, how to be stronger, who's going to be the strongest towards China and on Taiwan, with a string of very high profile visits, uh, uh, diplomatic visits to Taiwan, which are bound to irritate China and then call a response from China, which then calls a response for the U.S. and so on. So you have this tit for tat escalation. Um, which is, I think, very dangerous because this is how every major war starts, basically, by some incidents uh, that runs out of, of control. So the U.S., you know, does have an interest in keeping Taiwan um, uh, free and, and, and avoiding um, a, a military conflict there. But again, you know, isn't the best way to do that to actually have a you know, a, a thorough and large diplomatic relationship with, you know, with disagreements. Having diplomatic relationship with another country doesn't mean you agree with it. We all you have mean with relatives China, having businesses. diplomatic relations yeah. with China. That's right. What's the obstacle to actually, you know, talking? What we saw at the G7 in Indonesia a couple of months ago when uh, Xi and, and Biden met for the first time, was that immediately led to kind of a thaw in the relationship and sort of hope that things could be normalized and that there would be guardrails for the relationship and that the two countries would work to avoid misunderstanding that can spiral out into a conflict and possibly into a military conflict. This is off the table now. Blinken will not go to Beijing, which means there will no, be no preparation for, the, for a meeting between the two heads of states. And, and we are really at a very, very damaging inflection point in the U.S.-China relationship. The message here that I want to convey really is, yes, the U.S. will and can remain the sole superpower, the number one China is not going to catch up with the U.S. It doesn't have the assets. It doesn't have the resources. It doesn't have the global influence. It doesn't even have the innovation uh, of the U.S. But do you want to keep China in a position where it feels permanently aggrieved and increasingly belligerent? I don't think that serves anyone's interests. And doesn't one superpower in the world also destabilize the world? Well, that's right. I think that we've seen from the long history of, of uh, you know, U.S. Uh, intervention around the world and, and, and geopolitical play that one of the uh, uh, recurring theme is, you know, the overall confidence that, you know, the current administration has the solution for a particular problem. We know what we must do. We know that, you know, to solve the Iraq problem, we must have regime change and then everything's going to be fine. Uh, we know that the approach to the Middle East should now run through this or that, right? And now we have this same 
cocksure, you know, uh, uh, confidence about we know what China wants, we know how it's run, we know how to stop it, and we're just rolling out. And anyone who disagrees with our approach uh, has to be pushed aside and ignored. And I think that that's a trait of American foreign policy uh, over decades, and that's always a worrying sign because, you know, very often it has handled uh, badly. Nicholas Beckelin, we want to thank you so much for being with us, visiting fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center, previously with Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. Coming up, we speak to longtime human rights attorney Reed Brody about the European Commission's plans to set up a special center in The Hague to prosecute Russia for the crime of aggression for its invasion of Ukraine. What has been the U.S.'s response of setting up a special unit to look at the crime of aggression being war? Stay with us. Red Balloons. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The European Commission has announced plans to launch a center to prosecute Russia at The Hague for the crime of aggression for invading Ukraine nearly a year ago. Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, spoke Thursday. Russia must be held accountable in courts for its odious crimes. Prosecutors from Ukraine and the European Union are already working together. We are collecting evidence. And as a first step, I'm pleased to announce that an international center for the prosecution of the crime of aggression in Ukraine will be set up in The Hague. This center will coordinate the collection of evidence. It will be embedded in the joint investigation team, which is supported by our agency, Eurojust. So we will be ready to launch work very rapidly with Eurojust, with Ukraine, with the partners of our joint investigation team, as well as with the Netherlands. The perpetrator must be held accountable. That was Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission. We go now to longtime human rights attorney Reed Brody, who's brought historic legal cases against former Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet, former Chadian dictator Hissène Abre, and others, author of To Catch a Dictator, The Pursuit and Trial of Hissène Abre. He's joining us from Barcelona, Spain. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Reed. Um, can you talk about the significance of what's being Thank set you. up and what you think needs to be understood? Well, the first thing to be understood is that there already is uh, the largest war crimes investigation in history uh, going on right now in Ukraine. 
Ukraine, Ukrainian prosecutors have opened tens of thousands of uh, cases. Uh, the International Criminal Court uh, has opened its largest field operation ever. Uh, you have uh, 15 countries that have opened up their own investigations into war crimes. Uh, you have uh, this joint investigative team of, of seven countries. Um, never in, but all these investigations are looking at war crimes and crimes against humanity. They are not looking at the crime of aggression. And so the proposal has been made um, to create a special uh, tribunal uh, for the crime of aggression. And this um, uh, announcement by Ursula von der Leyen is actually just a precursor to that. It is to set up a center to collect evidence on the crime of aggression. Now, why is it that none of these massive investigations by Ukraine by the International Criminal Court, by other countries into war crimes and crimes against humanity are looking at aggression. Well, it's because right now there is no court uh, that has jurisdiction uh, to prosecute, international court, to prosecute uh, the crime of aggression. Um, and, and why is that? Um, at Nuremberg, uh, the trial of Nazi leaders after World War II, uh, the crimes against peace, aggression, was considered to be the supreme international crime, the worst crime, the crime that uh, paves the way for all the other crimes. Um, but, what, and, but what happened is that in the aftermath, um, the big powers, the victorious powers of World War II, the Soviet Union, the United States, they didn't want um, to have uh, the crime of aggression. Uh, they didn't want their wars um, to go before an international court, to go before a judge. And so the International Criminal Court, as it stands today, um, only has jurisdiction over war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide, unless the alleged aggressor state both ratifies the ICC treaty and consents uh, to ICC jurisdiction. And that carve-out for the crime of aggression was specifically fought for and won by the United States, by France, and by the United Kingdom. So the reason the ICC today cannot investigate the crime of aggression is because the U.S., France, United Kingdom, and others didn't want it to do so. And now there's a call to have a special tribunal on aggression. Um, obviously, the, the aggression is the worst international crime. And the Another attractiveness of the idea of a special tribunal for aggression is that it's a leadership crime. Um, right now, the, the, the investigators who are, who are looking at war crimes will also have to build the case to show that Russian leaders, uh, including Vladimir Putin, um, have command responsibility for those crimes, that they either gave the orders for those crimes um, or they, with knowledge that the crimes were being committed, they didn't step in um, to stop those crimes. Um, uh, the, um, aggression is a leadership crime. It goes straight to the top table. It's a very easy crime to prove. Russia has, I think we all can agree, illegally, in violation of the UN Charter, committed 
war of aggression against Ukraine. Vladimir Putin is the person who directed that uh, aggression. So it's a fairly easy crime to prove. Now, I think we can... We can all agree that this is a crime that should be prosecuted. The question really um, is how. And many people um, are looking at, the, including the former uh, uh, ICC prosecutor who you had on your show, Luis Marino Campo, are saying, wait a second, let's not just make a, make a special tribunal for Ukraine. Um, if we're going to prosecute the crime of aggression, let's amend the rules of the International Criminal Court so that it can prosecute aggression the same way it prosecutes war crimes and crimes against humanity, regardless of whether the aggressor state um, has agreed to the statute of the ICC and it consented to have its citizens um, come within the ICC's jurisdiction. So. The same way that the International Criminal Court is now looking at Russian crimes in Ukraine, even though Russia hasn't joined the ICC, or that it looked at, it's looking at uh, American crimes in Afghanistan, even though the U.S. hasn't joined uh, the ICC, the argument is let's not change the rules just for this case. Let's change the rules forever um, so that aggression not only by Russia against Ukraine, but any cases of aggression could be prosecuted. Finally, uh, Reid, I wanted to go back to your example of the Nuremberg trial. The U.S. prosecutor at Nuremberg in November 1945, Robert Jackson, said, let me make clear that while this law is first applied against German aggressors, the law includes, and if it is to serve a useful purpose, it must condemn aggression by any other nations, including those which sit here now in judgment. Why is the U.S. even allowing what's taking place now to take place at The Hague, this proposal? Well, of course, I mean, this is one of the reasons the U.S. is not out in front uh, on, on this proposal, because I think uh, American policymakers understand um, that this could come back uh, and bite them, and they understand the inherent uh, double standards uh, involved here. I mean, uh, you know, this, uh, I mean, the ICC uh, in general um, and internet, the whole international justice architecture in general is seen, particularly uh, in the global south, as being riddled uh, with double standards. Uh, you know, what, I mean, the ICC has opened up this massive and, and welcome investigation in Ukraine. Um, but, you know, why don't we see the same kind of massive uh, investigations in other places? Uh, the, the, uh, the case of, uh, uh, Israeli alleged Israeli crimes in Palestine has been sitting on the table for several years and it's going nowhere. Um, the uh, alleged American crimes in Afghanistan from back from 2002 um, have been, quote, deprioritized uh, by the ICC. Um, and of course, the case of aggression, um, you know, the the we, I mean, we, we all, in thinking about this, think about the U.S. and British uh, in, invasion of Iraq, which was considered by Kofi Annan and most legal scholars to be illegal. Um, so, you know, you do have this, I, I, I think, again, prosecute 
investigate Vladimir Putin for war crimes, for aggression. But let's do it in a way that ensures that these tools of international justice can also be used uh, when appropriate against powerful Western actors. Bree Brody, I want to thank you so much for being with us. War crimes um, uh, prosecutor has been involved with looking at war crimes uh, in many different areas. Author of To Catch a Dictator, The Pursuit and Trial of Hissein Habre. To see our full interview with him on the book, go to democracynow.org. Reed was speaking to us from Barcelona, Spain. Next up, we speak to the pioneering scholar Kimberly Crenshaw about her work on intersectionality and critical race theory after the college board removes her writings from the required curriculum for its AP African-American Studies class. Back in 30 seconds. Move out the way. I want my girls and we all need space. When the queens come through, try like the rest say. Move out the way. How many times? Move by Beyonce featuring Grace Jones and Thames. On Sunday night, Beyonce made history, winning more Grammys than any artist in history. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show with pioneering legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw to talk about her work on intersectionality and critical race theory after the college board removed her writings from the required curriculum for its AP African American Studies class. The college board recently revised its curriculum for an advanced placement African American Studies course and removed Black Lives Matter, slavery, reparations, and queer theory as required topics while adding a section on black conservatism. The new curriculum was released on the first day of Black History Month and came after Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis vowed to ban the AP Black Studies class in Florida schools and Florida's education department because he said the course, quote, lacks educational value. DeSantis is expected to announce his plans to run for president in the coming months, and this all comes as teachers across the country face increasing concern about what they're allowed to include in their curriculum as Republicans use the culture wars to build their brand. They're not only concerned teachers about being criticized, but being imprisoned. On Friday, we spoke to two professors who work, whose work has been removed from the new curriculum, E. Patrick Johnson and Kianga Yamada-Taylor, who both teach at Northwestern, as well as to Harvard Kennedy School professor Khalil Gibran Muhammad. Today, we're joined by another one of the band. Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, leading scholar in the field of critical race theory, coined the term intersectionality to study the overlapping or intersecting social identities and systems of oppression, domination or discrimination people experience. Executive director of the African-American Policy Forum, professor of law at both UCLA and Columbia University, joining us from New York after receiving the Winslow Medal from the Yale School of Public Health, the school's highest honor, which recognizes outstanding achievements in public health leadership, scholarship, or contribution to society. Congratulations, Professor Crenshaw, on that honor. 
And um, some consider it honor now to be banned, though they're infuriated by it. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering yeah. what your thoughts are now. To be clear, the college board said they made this decision to, for example, exclude your work from the required course before DeSantis made this last statement a few weeks ago. Yes, yes. Well, thank you, Amy. It's good to be back. You know, I think that the focus of the debate so far has perhaps misdirected uh, the conversation by discussing whether the ban or, I would say, benching of some of our work from required uh, text to optional text came at the behest of uh, Governor DeSantis. The reality is that there's been anti-woke uh, legislation uh, since uh, basically uh, President Trump uh, said, uh, stand by, uh, Proud Boys, I got something uh, for you. And what he came up with was uh, a ban on a whole range of uh, racial justice and equity ideas and practices and policies. Now, that got rescinded uh, as soon as uh, President Biden took office. But then it became a, a, a state-based strategy. At this point, uh, upwards of 42 states have considered uh, banning uh, a certain set of ideas, certain set of uh, uh, practices and concepts uh, under the, the frame of anti-wokeness or, or, or anti-CRT. So, you know, it really doesn't matter much whether the college board uh, came to these decisions two weeks ago or two months ago. Uh, this conversation has been going on for nearly two years, if not more. You don't become a, a billion-dollar corporation by not paying attention to the market. And the market indicators told the college board that this new course that they were hoping uh, to promote, and, and interestingly enough, the opportunity for the course came after the George Floyd activation, drove so many people in the streets, and they were demanding more information about structural racism, more information about intersectionality, more information about implicit bias. The same motivation that made people demand it also sparked, sparked a, a, a backlash in this legislation. So, of course, the College Board knew about it. Of course, the College Board um, had to take some kind of awareness, and we don't have to speculate about it. They've effectively told us that. When the course was announced um, this summer, uh, some of the uh, advocates for the course went to great pains to say uh, that this course was not CRT. Um, it, the, the effort was to distinguish it as much as possible. In reality, what that was signaling was a softness in the resolve to step forward with the ideas that had been associated with CRT. That is structural racism, uh, the movement for black lives, intersectionality. So there was the opportunity, there was the motivation, um, and there was ultimately uh, the, the content elimination, or I would just say benching of some of these ideas. That's what we should be talking about, not when the memo went out. So, Professor Crenshaw, I wanted to quote the Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson, who wrote, 
Educators must not allow the phrase critical race theory to be used to blacklist scholars the same way the word communist was used in the McCarthy era. Black history is our collective history as Americans. It must be told in full. And I think it's very interesting also, um, in light of today, to talk about the new McCarthy era, given the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But your thoughts? <laughs> Well, I was uh, delighted to see that someone noticed this. Uh, as, as you know, Amy, I've been talking about this since 2020. Uh, I've been saying that the whole anti-CRT, anti-woke uh, approach to legislation uh, is a very old idea. It's basically an idea that says uh, greater uh, attention to equity, uh, greater attention to equality uh, effectively uh, amounts to reverse discrimination. It's anti-white. Now, this is a far-right talking point that wasn't often expressed in, in polite company uh, for uh, until uh, effectively Barack Obama was elected and then uh, President Trump, and now it's become uh, mainstream. And the way that it has been made a uh, mainstream is by stoking fears about a set of ideas that most people couldn't tell you one thing about, except for the fact that they've been told to be afraid of these ideas, that it's taking something away from them, um, and they should repudiate it. That is a classic form uh, of McCarthyism. And what makes it so uh, uh, disturbing is the fact that people who know better People who know this history were willing to sit it out to think that it was going to go away uh, when uh, the conversation changed or to think that they could outrun the shadow by simply saying, we don't do critical race theory without paying attention to what the critics said critical race theory uh, was, what they were going after. All of these ideas, but more importantly, Amy, they've said they're going after public education. They said they're going after university. So nobody can be surprised when suddenly this effort to stump out uh, critical race theory turns out to be an effort to make anti-racism unspeakable, to make uh, queer studies undoable, to make intersectionality one of the most uh, widespread concepts across the disciplines, something that college-directed students cannot uh, uh, take or can only take uh, if the states allow them to. Um, Anybody who's concerned about our democracy, anyone who's concerned about authoritarianism has to wake up and pay attention to this, because this is how it happens. I want to go to the Congressional Black Caucus chair, uh, Nevada Congressman Stephen Horsford, speaking after their caucus meeting at the White House Thursday with President Biden and Vice President Harris. We were here, as you know, to discuss the importance of public safety. Uh, policing and justice. Uh, we are doing this in part uh, in response to Tyree Nichols, uh, a young man who should be alive today, uh, a person who was a son and a father who loved photography and skateboarding. We have agreement on how we will continue to work forward, both from a legislative standpoint as well as uh, executive and community-based solutions, but the focus will always be on public safety, public safety for all communities, because we understand that it is about the culture of policing and keeping all communities safe, and all of us should be able to agree that bad policing 
has no place in any American city or so that's uh, the Congressional Black Caucus chair, Stephen Horsford, with a group of uh, CBC Congress members who just met with Harris and Biden. Um, and of course, you had Vice President Harris speaking at uh, Tyree Nichols' funeral, uh, where she called for the passage of the George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act. Um, and I think Cory Booker yesterday, one of the key people pushing that, all but conceded that's not going to happen. Maybe smaller points will happen, for example, banning chokeholds, except in life-threatening situations when will police claim that uh, their lives are threatened, set federal standards for no-knock warrants, um, limit transfer of some military equipment to local departments. But I'm bringing all this up in relation to this, because Black Lives Matter, which grew up in response to uh, the killing of young black men and women, um, is now not required in the curriculum. Well, this is why um, we need to listen very carefully tomorrow to see if the president backs up his conversation um, with a clear directive to the American people that the uh, question of uh, police brutality uh, is a vital concern and that efforts to promote uh, the, the, the value of black lives uh, cannot be silenced and cannot be sidelined. Look, the, 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 the movement for black lives, the, the mobilization that took place in 2020 was the largest mobilization in American history. We all know that there is no chance of pushing forward any fundamental change, any kind of serious legislation to address our social problems without an active social movement that creates frame alignment, that fr creates a, the notion that this is an important issue. What can signal that the movement for black lives, that the, the problem of police brutality is less significant than it needs to be, than taking it out as a a required reading in a course on African-American studies. So it's up to the president, it's up to leadership to step into this, to reverse uh, this faction that has basically tried to make racism unspeakable, to reverse the accommodationism that is at play when profit motives uh, come into uh, tension with the basic uh, imperative of African-American studies, which is to understand the condition, not simply as an assortment of fun facts, but as the material interest that need to be understood in order to transform this country into the multiracial democracy that it truly claims to be. You are just referring to President Biden tomorrow night, Tuesday night. Of course, he's giving a State of the Union address. Then he'll be launching a 20-state post-State of the Union blitz with his cabinet uh, to discuss the economic agenda. What do you think needs to be the message conveyed throughout this country right now? Well, I think the message needs to be uh, uh, conveyed that we are about to go into a political period uh, that is uh, uh, not unlike the political period in 1876. It's not unlike uh, 1968, in which race is on the agenda, whether explicitly or implicitly. The Democrats have never really been effective since— we have 30 um, seconds. Uh, 
Lee Atwater made it clear that race was going to be used uh, as a political cudgel. So this is the opportunity to prepare Americans to support uh, the idea behind multiracial democracy, not allow race to get into the way and say what they stand for once and for all. Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, we thank you so much for being with us, Executive Director of the African-American Policy Forum, Professor of Law at UCLA and Columbia University. That does it for our show, Democracy Now! Produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Gesder, Messiah Rhodes, Noreen Sheikh, Marie Tarasena, Tammy Warnock, Trina Nadura, Sam Alcock, Tamaria, Studio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Sanjeev Lopez. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining